You and I, we, uh, we worship a, a God who, who astounds us, especially when we're paying attention, especially when we are, are focused in intent upon what our, our God has done, what He's done. Just to go back and to, to look and to consider the, the things that God has, has done throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, what God has, has done in both the, what we see in the Old Testament, to consider what God has, has accomplished within the events of the ministry of Jesus and in the first century apostolic church, and then to to continue to see the way that God has been at work within humanity throughout the, the, the last couple of thousand years. But sometimes whenever we, we just take a minute to pause and to think about who God is and what God has done and what God is doing for us. Slow it down a little bit and take it all in. We are, we should be simply overwhelmed with the goodness and the grace and the love and the mercy and the challenge and the calling of, of God. And especially as we're, as we're working toward as we're working toward next week, thinking about how God is at work within us here and now, but, but also as, as so much of the, the world, even if, if challenged to understand the fullness of what next Sunday represents to the world, for us to be cognizant of how the story of God might continue to be revealed through us in the lives of others. And I know that it goes without saying that we're a, we're a people of resurrection. That we, that we come together and we celebrate the resurrection every single Sunday. That's why the church since that first Sunday has met each first day of the week. We look to the early church and we say, well, we see this example of them meeting on the first day of the week. And that's true, but why did they do it? Because Sunday's the day of resurrection. And I'm so very grateful for, for our, our shepherds and our elders, and I don't just say that because I'm the preacher. I'm very grateful for our elders, and our, that was an attempt at humor, I won't do that in second service. Um, <clears throat> them, uh, them leading us in, in the thoughts during communion, um, for this month, that was that was their initiative, their idea, and I'm just very grateful grateful for that. As as, as they're they're leading us in this journey, this journey toward the cross, and this journey toward the resurrection, and then this journey that, well, as resurrected people, living redeemed lives, this journey that we continue to make every moment of every day is. As Christians, we know that, that Easter celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. And if you're, if you're looking, and many of you know this, if you're looking to Scripture for the word Easter, 
you're not going to find it unless you use the 1611 King James. And it's found in one place, in one verse, in the 1611 King James. And that's in Acts chapter 12, verse 4. And it's utilized in that verse as a, as a replacement for, standing in for the word, the word Passover. And this, this connects with what Quinn Johnson shared a few seconds ago. Passover. We know that, that Jesus is crucified during the time of Passover, that Jesus is resurrected during Passover, that as Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples on that Thursday evening before the Friday morning of the cross, Jesus, he, he comes to that upper room with them and he celebrates what? The Passover. He celebrates Israel's redemption from Egyptian slavery. When, when Jesus takes the the unleavened bread, and takes the wine from that table in that upper room. He takes those emblems, instituting the Lord's Supper, from the table of Passover. And so it makes sense to us, it should, that as the Exodus, as the Passover, was to Israel, So the cross and resurrection are to us. We're a people of resurrection. We're a people of resurrection because of the resurrection. And I know this might make a few of you uncomfortable. But if thinking about Passover and the term Easter and resurrection along those lines, we can safely say that we are an Easter people. Because we're a resurrected people. We're a people of resurrection. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the culmination of the redemptive work of God. And as a people of resurrection, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We gather together. And so if celebrating Easter next Sunday... Celebrating Easter next Sunday, then this Sunday, the Sunday before the resurrection, nearly 2,000 years ago, this Sunday is the Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy. It's referred to as the, as the triumphal entry. You may have a subheading in your, in your Bibles as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, fulfilling prophecy, riding on a Donkey cold. It's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Most, many Christian traditions refer to this as, as Palm Sunday. You have Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and then Easter. But we know that it was on a Sunday, the first Sunday of the week, if we believe it to have been AD 33, when Jesus was crucified. And that was on a Sunday, 1,986 years ago, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, fulfilling Scripture, bringing to fruition all the voices of the prophets, all of his life 
pointing toward this moment. History hinging upon the things that are going to take place. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem that Sunday before the cross, everything from history and the plan of God culminating, rushing toward the cross and resurrection. Everything funneling toward this moment where Jesus will enter into this city in an obscure part of the world. And literally, over a period of Sunday to Sunday, Sunday to Sunday, 1,986 years ago, plan of God will be unveiled. In Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem was known as the great city of God. Just look to your Old Testament time and time again. Jerusalem, Zion, it's the great city of God. And it was on the Sunday before the cross, the Sunday before the Sunday, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. It was on that Sunday that the king returns to the city of God to be exalted and lifted up. So look with me, if you will, at the triumphal entry. And I want to look at Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 21. Read with me, if you will, verses, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, say to Jerusalem, see your king, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna! In the highest. The the people have been hearing about what what this, this man from Nazareth named Jesus, this rabbi, has been doing for years. And even if they haven't seen it firsthand, they've heard of the things that Jesus has been accomplishing through his ministry as he's healed and as he's blessed and as he's as he's rebuked. As he's, as he's taught as one with authority, not as their teachers, but as one who seems to be sent from God. And they've heard, if they've not seen, they've heard of the miracles that Jesus has done. They've heard all of these 
stories of the events surrounding the ministry of Jesus ever since he, he turned water into wine, everything rushing toward this moment as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, fulfilling not only all of the words of the prophets, but fulfilling the will of God since the beginning of time. The people, they, they welcome Him. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest on this Sunday before the Sunday. Welcome the King. The King is returning to the city of God. And, and even though they misunderstood their King, these, these Israelites, these Jewish people, they're, they're waiting for the king to return so that they might be delivered and redeemed just like Israel was out of Egypt. That they might be delivered from Rome. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Look at verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? You see, the Jews are they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Christ. And they hail Him as the Christ. The Jews of the city do. And yet the whole city is stirred. Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Luke, in his Gospel account, if you look at Luke chapter, chapter 19, Luke shares that as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, think about this, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, and as He sees the city, Luke records that, that Jesus, He weeps over the city. We're familiar with Jesus' tears at the tomb of Lazarus, but I wonder if we forget His tears with the triumphal entry. And this is the journey to the cross for Jesus. This is the way of and the way to the cross for Jesus. As He enters into to Jerusalem and as He is welcomed as Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And yet on Friday of this week, the Friday after this Sunday, the same people who shout, welcome to the King, will shout, crucify Him, crucify Him. This is the journey to the cross. It's on the Sunday before the cross and the resurrection that the King returns to the city of God to be exalted and to be lifted up. Henry Nowen writes this, God chose the way of downward mobility. I love that. God chose the way of downward mobility. Every time Jesus speaks about being glorified, go to the next frame there. Every time Jesus speaks about being glorified and giving glory, He always refers to His humiliation and death. It is through the way of the cross that Jesus gives glory to God. 
receives glory from God and makes His glory known to us. The glory of the resurrection can never be separated from the glory of of the cross. We crave and we yearn for resurrection. And yet we cannot separate the cross from it. The glory and the resurrection can never be separated from the glory of the cross. The risen Lord always shows us His wounds. This from a man by the name or referred to as Isaac of Nineveh. He was a 7th century church elder. Isaac of Nineveh states, The way unto God, the way unto God is a daily cross. Sometimes we want the resurrection. We want resurrection without sacrifice. We so anticipate and we, and we, we live in the hope of the resurrection. And we live as a resurrected people. But we cannot be resurrected people. Truly, fully, completely. Without being sacrificial people. Without being a people of the cross. Without being a people who take up our cross daily. And who followed the journey and the way of Jesus. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most heinous form of death imaginable. Have you ever thought, have you ever had the morbid thought to yourself, what would be what would be the absolute worst way to die? You ever ever thought that or played that played that game? What would be if I had the choice between this or this? I'm not going to fill in the blank because it might be different for each of us. You ever had that morbid thought? If, if, I mean, what would be the absolute worst way to die? As if very many of us will have that choice. What's the worst way to, what's the worst way to die? Those who lived in and around the Roman Empire for a thousand years they knew the answer to that question. They had seen this craft of death, which is really what it was. I appreciated Ken's thoughts this moment, this, this morning, because it, it helps us to see things from, a, from a, a medical professional's perspective. This art of, art of death, if I can say it that way, that the Romans had perfected in crucifixion. And was utilized as a statement to any and to all who would ever get in the way of the empire. It's the most heinous and painful, torturous way of death imaginable. And for a thousand years, death and empire, those were what Rome, the Roman Empire, those are the things they were good at. They were known for it. They had perfected it. It was a statement of this is what happens when you get in the way of empire. I've shared it before, the the difference between heaven or hell. Heaven is where the police are British, the chefs are French, the mechanics are German, the cars are Italian, and it's all organized by the Swiss. Hell. Hell is where the police are German, the chefs are English, the mechanics are French, 
The cars are Swiss, and it's all organized by the Italians. People groups and, and cultures, if they're around long enough, people, people group and cultures, they become known for what they do well or maybe for what they do not do well, as the case may be. But the crucifixion, the crucifixion was God's choice. And I know that sounds contrary to us. The crucifixion was God's choice. The crucifixion was Jesus' choice. It was all orchestrated in the perfect timing, in the perfect plan, so that you and I might be made perfect. That in this heinous, torturous death, that we might find life. That in this unforgivable act of savagery against our Lord, that we might find forgiveness. Hosanna. Hosanna to crucify. It's, it wasn't a very long length of time where they welcomed Him as the King on Sunday and then on Friday, they're, they're shouting, crucify Him. Crucify Him. Five, five days. And yet, how often in our lives do we betray Him and it takes more like five seconds rather than five days for us to go from Hosanna to crucify? And many of these people who had shouted Hosanna and had laid their coats and their branches on the road into Jerusalem and shouted Hosanna and who had been there in Pilate's courtyard and shouted for Jesus to be crucified rather than Barabbas on that Friday. Many of them are present at Pentecost in Acts 2. And they're the very same ones who cry out to the apostles and ask the question, brothers, what shall we do? As Peter says, you're responsible for the death of the Christ. And of course, Peter's reply to them is repent and be baptized. And Matthew, in his Gospel account, He's pointing us to the fulfillment of the prophet Zechariah. It's what's called a messianic passage from the Old Testament. And there are, there are so many beautiful, powerful messianic passages that are woven throughout the tapestry of the Old Testament. And they all, they all point us toward the truth of Jesus' sacrificial death and the, and the sanctification that we receive through the resurrection and redemption that follows. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that we're familiar with where Jesus, He begins, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me on the cross? And it's an echoing of Psalm 22 of David. And it's a psalm that begins, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? And if you're familiar with the passage, you know that everything within that psalm is being unveiled in what Jesus is experiencing there on the cross. 
It's also a psalm that concludes, but God, God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden His face from Him. He has listened for His cry for help. When Jesus quotes this Messianic psalm on the cross, it reveals His humanity, but it also reveals His trust in God. There's another beautiful messianic and prophetic text that's found within the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 52. And in Isaiah 52, it's, it's, a, it's a messianic poem. It's poetry. From the prophet. That we, that many of us, I believe, are familiar with. But we're not familiar with it in the way that we should be. And it's a passage whose message is at the core of what we're talking about today in this Sunday before the Friday and the Sunday. Isaiah 52, let me read beginning in verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, who say to the city of God, who say to Jerusalem, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Now the text that we saw earlier from Romans chapter 10, in Romans 10, the Apostle Paul, he actually paraphrases verse 7 from Isaiah 52. And he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But he, leads, he leaves out the words on the mountain. But what has just occurred in Isaiah 52, what has just occurred is that the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. And all of these Israelites, all of these Israelites have been taken captive and hauled off into exile. And there's only a few, there's only a remnant that remain in the city. And the people that have been taken away and the people that are left behind in Jerusalem, they are, they are left wondering, has our God abandoned us? And Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah has been telling them all along the way that destruction was coming. That destruction was coming because of their faithlessness. And when it finally came, no one expected it. And within these moments, the, the city and the temple, they've all been destroyed. But then the poem goes on. There's watchmen on a wall. Far away. Through the hills. They can see a messenger. A messenger who's running. A messenger who is, is running toward the city, toward the city of Jerusalem, and he is shouting. Good news. 
good news. Gospel. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, Isaiah says. The feet of that messenger were no doubt dusty, dirty, marred, injured from running to the city of God. But Isaiah says they're beautiful. They're beautiful because of the message they proclaim. They're beautiful because of the good news. Good news as an announcement, as a declaration. And those feet of the messenger, they're beautiful as they are nailed to the cross. The good news... The good news was that despite Jerusalem's destruction and the people's exile, that Israel's God, the one true living God, still reigned. And that God Himself was going to one day return, enter Jerusalem, take up His throne, accomplish salvation. And bring peace. And the watchmen, they sing for joy at the news that their God reigns. And the story, the story of Isaiah 52, as the king returns, is fulfilled in the journey of Jesus to the cross. As God enters Jerusalem that Sunday, Not on a a war horse as they had expected, but on a donkey colt. And as the people welcomed Him, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Our God reigns. And as He is welcomed by the people, laying their coats and laying those branches in front of Him as He makes His way through the dusty, dirty streets of Jerusalem. And on that Friday, as the ones who shouted Hosanna shout crucify. Our Lord, He walks the dusty, dirty streets of Jerusalem. The city of God. Zion. Carrying a cross outside of the city, of the city gate to a place called the Skull. As those beautiful feet walk toward the cross, proclaiming, declaring good news. That's what that's what unfolds from Sunday to Friday. And things may seem pretty bleak on Friday, but you and I we know that Sunday's coming. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news of Jesus, what we're actually talking about is the announcement of the reign of our King. Gospel, when you look at it in the New Testament, it comes to refer to all of Jesus' teachings, and in particular to what God accomplishes on our behalf 
through the death, through the burial, and through the resurrection of Jesus. But ultimately, gospel, good news, is about God's reign. It's about God's rule. God's kingdom. The return of the King. Early Christian writer and elder in the first century church, Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch, not to be confused with Ignatius of of Loyola. But he was born in 35 A.D. Go to the next slide there. He was born in 35 A.D. Now think about that. This This is extra biblical. This is church history. But he's said to have been born two years after the crucifixion of Jesus and to have died in 107. Ignatius was a prisoner on his way to Rome. He met his fate 30 years after the Apostle Paul did in the same place. He's eventually executed, but he writes this in a letter on his way to Rome. Christianity is not a matter of persuading people to particular ideas, but inviting them to share in the greatness of Christ. Jesus' glory of downward mobility is the way of the cross. Jesus will say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all mankind unto Myself. As He humbles Himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when we exalt Him, when we hail Him as King, not only by our words, but by our lives. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus is honored. And I am grateful that we journey together as a church family here. That we share in life together as we are defined by the resurrection of Jesus. I'm grateful that we're taking this journey together and following Jesus not only as a way of life, but the weeks of this month as we're focused upon these events. My prayer is that if you've, if you've not committed yourself to a life defined by Jesus, that you would have the courage and boldness today to do so. That you would submit your life to Christ by being baptized into Him, by being immersed into Him. It requires sacrifice. Jesus will even refer to the cross as a baptism of sorts. If you've not been baptized into Christ, I ask you to come as we stand and as Adam leads us in song.